Right, so what I'd like to do this today is to introduce this new series that we're going to be doing over the next couple of months. And this is actually is a preamble to what we want to do over the summer. And over the summer, we're going to do a course, a series of messages called Family Matters, in which we want to talk about a whole lot of things with you uh, in terms of things like our identity, who we are in Christ. We want to talk about some of the things that are going on in our culture in terms of how our culture sees issues of gender and sexuality. And we want to just give you some b- biblical basis for what we believe as a church and why we hold to what we hold to. And so to introduce that, we're going to do the series for the next eight weeks called Contending for Faith. And this letter is an absolutely amazing letter. It's only one chapter, so you can afford to have a look at it in your devotions each, uh, each day. And have a look and just prayerfully consider what this letter might be t- teaching us. And I, I want to suggest to you, I want to just kick off right at the beginning to say that I think this letter has never, ever been as relevant as it, as it is for us at this time. And um, I trust that you would find it encouraging and challenging as we look at the book of Jude together. Um, we've called it Contending for Faith because that's verse 3, of, of the, which we'll see in a moment. But I, I want to just say right now uh, at the beginning, we're not trying to be contentious, all right? There's a difference between being contentious and contending for something. Contending for something is a positive sense of standing on what you believe to be true. Being contentious is just fighting with people over things that uh, are just opinions, all right? So we're not trying to be contentious, but we are wanting to say this is what we want to lovingly contend for as believers, all right? So I'm going to look at the introduction with you this morning, the first four verses. I've broken it into two sections, which will become apparent as I do it. But let's read together the first two verses. simply says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What a wonderful introduction. I love love the language of it already. So the first question we want to ask is just, well, who was Jude? And let's get our head around that. Well, we see in these verses that he claims to be a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. And so there's really only one person that, can, uh, that could possibly be, and that's Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had a number of brothers and sisters, and we know that from the other Gospels. Um, so, for example, remember our study from Mark, which we completed recently in verse 3 of chapter 6. It says this in Mark's Gospel. Uh, as Jesus comes back to Galilee, he's rejected by his hometown. And it says this, is this not the, the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters also here with us? And they took offense at him. So most uh, scholars think that um, uh, Judas is, is uh, uh, Jude here, that basically after the betrayal of Jesus, it wasn't uh, so cool to have the name Judas anymore. And so basically, he shortened his name to Jude, and uh, you can understand why he did that. So he became known as Jude, and he was one of the brothers of Jesus. So here we also know that um, in John's Gospel, in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, it says that while he was alive, his brothers and sisters didn't really believe in him as Messiah. And we know that in um, 
from, like I said, John 7, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him, speaking of their relationship with Jesus. But something changes after the resurrection, because we know in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. It says, All these were of one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So after the resurrection happens, his brothers believe now he is who he said he was. They believe he's Messiah, and they start to see him as Messiah. It's also very difficult to date exactly when this letter was written, this letter of Jude. Um, we know that the people that it was written to had all heard the preaching of the apostles, so it's unlikely to have been written much later than a generation or so after the apostles. So we think it probably was around A.D. 60, in the first century, that this um, letter was written. And we also know that um, around that time, in the first century, there, was an, there really was a, a, an attack on the church, um, and the, the, the church be already began to drift away from authentic faith and belief in Jesus. Um, the reason for that is that a lot of Initially, uh, the Jewish kind of faith was the basis for Christianity. And what started happening as people began to preach in different cities. We know Paul, for example, went all over planting churches. Then what happened was Greek people, Greek-speaking people, started getting saved. And so what they did, it's very good. Uh, what, what they did, though, was they brought some of their philosophy with them and their background with them and tried to merge the two with Christian faith. And so there's this kind of undermining of some of the traditional beliefs that the early Christians held, and we think that possibly this group that um, was spoken of by Jude in this letter were the Gnostics, and I'll explain what the Gnostics believed over the weeks that come ahead. So the, the central theme, really, of Jude is that we need to be standing and preventing the character of the church from being changed. And so this is the central theme. It's, um, it's, and that's the great challenge that we face as Christians right now. There are many challenges from outside the church, from culture, and unfortunately there are also some challenges from inside church um, communities that are trying to get the church to change its character and conform to what society says is acceptable and should be normative. And so we have this great challenge in our generation to hold on to biblical truth to hold on to the gospel as we've been given it, that's been passed down to us, and our responsibility is to pass that on to the generations that are coming after us without allowing it to be perverted and changed in any way. That's the great challenge that we face. And so the loud call of Jude, the crystal clear call of Jude, is to hold on to faith in Jesus, to look after ourselves and to and to make sure that our own life and doctrine is in accord with what the gospel teaches us, and then to help those around us, our friends and our families and our loved ones, to hold on to those same things so we can pass it on in an authentic way to those that come after us. So let's um, look at the first couple of verses as, as, as the basis of what we do this morning. Uh, Jude introduces himself in two ways. Do you notice that? He says, He's, the, first of all, the servant of Jesus, and there the word is doulos, which simply means servant. And then he, then he says, I'm also the brother to James. Uh, and we know, we've established already that they were both half-brothers of Jesus. 
And it's very interesting to me that, that Jude doesn't highlight his relationship so much with Jesus as his half-brother. Do you notice that? He says, he says rather, he doesn't major on the fact that he's, he's Jesus' brother. He says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a brother of James, who you know. And uh, it's interesting because Jesus did the same thing in, 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 uh, in Philippians, that great chapter, Philippians chapter 2. He says, it says there that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather he humbled himself and took on a for, the form of a servant. So that's how he chose to come and, and, and to live amongst us as a servant. And basically, Jude is doing the same thing. He's not trying to say, look, I'm, I'm really quite a special guy because, you know, my brother's Jesus. It's not like name dropping. He's saying, no, no, you know my brother James, and uh, he's, he's even willing to kind of be known as James's brother. And James was one of the apostles that formed, uh, uh, started the church in Jerusalem. And so for, it's very interesting to me that this is how Jude introduces himself. And it's a lesson to all of us that we don't have to try and promote ourselves or push ourselves forward because we know anyone famous or we know people of influence. Have you ever been around people like that? Name droppers. They always drop names of famous people that they know. So it kind of makes them look a little bit more important. Isn't that true? Well, we don't have to do that. Why? Because if you are great in the kingdom of God, God will make that plain to everyone over a period of time. And that you will, people will know that you have influence in the kingdom because of what God does in you and through you. You don't have to try and help God to do that. <laughs> All right? I don't have to try and help God to do that either. And it's likely that we might be very unknown for a long time in the kingdom before we become known. That's also true. You know, I've, uh, it's, it's interesting um, when you look at the history of, uh, of churches and churches that are planted. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Suddenly you hear of a church that's having influence in a, in a community or a city, and everyone says, isn't that amazing? Look how well they're doing. And behind the story is you often see there's been 25 or 30 years or 40 years of people just faithfully getting on, doing what God has called them to do in a given community and city, and suddenly God gives them influence. Yeah? But for many years, no one knew about them, and they were just doing what God called them to do. So I want to encourage you in your life, whatever you're, you feel God has called you to in your ministry, be faithful. Don't worry about, you know, the world loves to big people up, doesn't it? We've all got to be, have, you know, in our Instagram culture, it's all about presenting yourself in a positive way so people can see you in the best possible way. Don't have to do that in the kingdom. Just get on, live your life, live it openly and honestly, and God will promote you in time to what he's called you to do. So that's what James does. He introduces himself as a servant, and he introduces himself as the half-brother of James. The second thing that he does, he tells his readers three things about themselves to all the people that are reading the letter. Do you notice what they are? He says, you are called, you are loved in God, and you are kept for Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? That's true for every one of you, every one of me, uh, every one of me, me too. <laughs> Everyone here, you are called, you are loved, and you are kept. What amazing, amazing, amazing thing to think about this morning. The word for calling in the New Testament is a very powerful word. It describes this kind of summons that we have by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. And again, I want to just um, use the Greek because it helps us to 
Understand the Greek word for calling is kalien, K-A-L-E-I-N. And it's used basically in three ways in the New Testament. Did I pronounce it incorrectly? Kalien, okay? And uh, the first way that it's used in the New Testament is to call someone to an office or a duty or a responsibility. That's how we use it, use it a lot today, isn't it? This person was called to be a nurse. This person was called to be a minister of the gospel. There's a sense of God reveals in our lives what He's called us to do, and there's this wooing by the Holy Spirit that draws us into the kingdom. That's the first way, uh, primarily to know Jesus, and that's the first way that that calling is used in the New Testament. We are called into a duty and responsibility for the kingdom. All right? Secondly, it's used in this way. It's when people were invited to a wedding or a great feast. It's the same word. You are called. Come and join. Come and be part of the wedding. Come and be a guest of the bridegroom. And in the same way, every single one of us as believers, we are called and invited to know God as our Father what an amazing privilege to know him not as a servant or a slave, but as father. We know him as father. And every one of us is called to the, the feast of the, the wedding feast of the Lamb on that great day. We are all called and invited to that great celebration together. That's the second way it's used. So we're called that we have a, a sense of destiny in our lives and we're called to be saved part of God's kingdom. We are then also invited to be sons and daughters. We're invited to that great wedding feast of the Lamb. And the third way that it is used is that it's also used, speaking of judgment, that every man, some people are called into court because they've broken the law and they need to give an account of how they were speeding or went through a traffic light that was red or whatever it is. And you and I also will give an account for our lives. It's used in that way as well. Every one of us as believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, but here's the cool thing. God does not, at that moment, He's not going to judge you for your sin. Your sin is not going to be exposed. Why? Because your sin has been taken by Jesus on the cross, and your sin is gone. God sees it no more. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, he's, it's going to be for the accolade of Jesus upon your life. It's going to be for, well done, my good and faithful servant. Here is the reward, the inheritance that I have for you. Come and enjoy this reward with me. So you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear the life that is to come in any way. Why? Because your internal destiny is secure, and all you're going to hear from Jesus one day is the well done, good, and faithful servant for how you live, live your life. Man, that should encourage you if nothing else does this morning. All that fear of condemnation is taken. There's the now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what it means. You don't have to fear in any way for the future, or for appearing before God one day, all you're going to hear is the applause of heaven upon your life. Amen. Well, I hope I'm encouraging you. I'm doing my best this morning. That's the way that um, uh, this word calling is used. And uh, so calling, to summarize, and it, it kind of it, it speaks of this irresistible, effective way that God draws us into the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not that we try to be better people. It's not that at all. 
A lot of people think when you become a Christian, you're trying to be better and you improve your life and you do a whole lot of things that help you to improve your life and be better. That's not being a Christian, okay? That's living under a legalism of, of righteousness that somehow you have to behave in a certain way so that you can please God. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is that God irresistibly draws you into his kingdom like he did. I want to quote to Lydia in Acts 16. It says this, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what we said, and Paul baptized her and her household as well. That's what it means to become a Christian. You don't, you kind of walking along, doing your life, doing your thing, and suddenly God opens your heart irresistibly to His grace, and you can't help yourself, and you find that you come to faith, and it's His kindness and His love that's drawn you all the time. You come to faith, everything changes. Your whole life, your past, gone. Your future changes and is assured, and you start living differently, and you see everything different. The way that you see sex and money and power completely changes. The way that you love people completely changes. Is it you trying very hard to be a better person? No, it's the irresistible grace of God that's come into your heart and changed your heart. And you can't but help see everybody differently. That's what it means to be saved. That's what God does. If you're visiting this morning, I sometimes shout, but I'm not angry, right? I just, so forgive me if, if you find me loud. All right, so that's what it means to be called. And behind, Jude gives us, gives us the really cool thing. Behind the calling is the love of God. That's what he says. He says, called and loved. And this is the, the, the God has his special love on you. If you are sitting this morning, I want you to know that the fact that you are in this place is because God has put His special love upon you. It is true that God loves the whole world. Absolutely true that God loves everyone. But it is equally true that God loves some people specially. And I don't know why that is. But that's what the Bible says. He loves some people specially. How can I say that? Well, I can point you to a whole lot of examples. It says in Genesis 18 verse 19 of Abraham. It says, God chose him. And the word there in Hebrew for chose is new and loved. God loved everyone. But on this man, Abraham, he saw something and his heart was towards Abraham in a special way. He loved Abraham especially. And he called him. And he became part of his, his elect, if you want to use that word. And it's the same. It's, it's true for Israel. If you read Amos or Hosea or Jeremiah, I'll give you a couple. Amos 3 verse 2, it says, God knew his people Israel. He loved his people Israel. In other words, he set his heart on them in a special way that was different to all of the other nations. He set his heart upon them. It says in Jeremiah verse 31, you probably know this verse very well, speaking again of the nation of Israel. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. And that's true for you, and it's true for me. God has set His heart upon our lives in a special way. And He's drawn us. His irresistible grace has drawn us. He's opened our hearts. We've become to know Him. And now because we've known Him, He's working in our lives, and He's transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And it's all behind His choosing is His love. 
saying, I love you especially, and I put my hand upon you. People often say to me, well, why doesn't God save everybody? I don't know. I'm not God. I'll ask him one day why that happens. But I want you to know this, that if you are saved and you know Jesus, celebrate that and enjoy the fact that God has called you and loved you and do all that you can to introduce other people to the same love. That's all I can say to you. Don't worry about who's not saved. Get on and preach the gospel and live the gospel. And let God's sovereign grace intervene in people's lives and draw them, and its loving kindness draw them into the kingdom. Amen? And then he says this. I love this, the third part. You are guarded by God. Guarded by God. Oh, this is so wonderful. You know, if God has loved you, if God has called you and He's put His special love upon you and He's drawn you into the kingdom and you and you've, are saved, you can rest in this fact that He will guard you, that He will keep you, that you do not have to f fear falling away. Once saved, always saved. If you truly are born again, you are not going to lose your salvation. God's hand, His promise is that He will keep you till that day of Jesus. Does that mean that you go sometimes go up and down? Yes, it does. Does it mean you lose your salvation? No, you might lose some of your inheritance. God has some good things for you to enjoy here on earth. And if you choose to work in, walk away in a certain way, you can lose something of the good thing that God has for you. Doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It does mean that you might lose some of the inheritance and the fullness of what He wants you to enjoy here on earth. His promise is, I will keep you until that day. And that's what Jude says here. And that's why the Bible uses this language, who God, I'm sorry, I'm frothing over you this morning. Who God is called, He is justified, and who is justified, He sanctifies, and who He sanctifies, He will one day glorify. That's what the language is of the New Testament over and over again. You can rest in that. You don't have to be anxious. You know, we all behave badly, isn't it? I sometimes behave badly. When I behave badly, it does not mean that I step out of the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of darkness again and suddenly I'm unsaved. No, it just means I behave badly. And I need to say sorry as a Christian to my wife or to my family. Sorry, I screwed up. Forgive me. I'm sorry, God. And I carry on. You don't fall in and out of salvation. One day saved. Behave well, stay, stay saved. So don't behave well, unsaved. Now, I've worked really, really hard to get saved again. It doesn't work like that. God is not as fickle as that. Those he saves, calls, he saves. Those he saves, he, he sanctifies. Those he sanctifies, he glorifies and justifies and glorifies. Everyone say amen. This is good news because this is the gospel. And so, I want to conclude the introduction. And then he the yeah, final part of this, he has this amazing prayer for these people. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Isn't that cool? Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied over all of you that are reading this letter. That's his prayer for them. Why? Because these three things are what we need most of all. They're beautiful. We all need God's constant mercy in our lives because we know we're undeserving of His goodness. We know we're undeserving of His love. And so we need His mercy. Secondly, we need God's peace. Why do we need God's peace? Well, for all of you that are younger than me and think that our generation has screwed up the world, you know, it's true, we have screwed up the world. But here's the thing. 
The world has always been full of war and, and kindness, unforgiveness. It just changes its form. But for centuries, it's been like that ever since the day of Jesus. And that's why we need the peace of God. Because the world is always unkind, stressed, relentless, and full of trouble and full of anxiety. That's why you need the peace of God. And that's why I need the peace of God. Amen? Lastly, we need God's love because the world is so hostile and angry and unforgiving and cancel culture. That's the new thing, isn't it? Don't agree with me? Canceled. Won't even speak to you. We're living in an increasingly ungracious, unkind world, and that's why we need God's love. I've gone too long this morning, but I still need to say something to you. Is that okay? Yeah, we go. All right, so that's the first two verses. And verse 3 and 4 are the second half of this introduction. They say this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once and all, once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this con condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the main reason for Jude writing his letter. He started to write one kind of letter, and he found himself writing another kind of letter. He changed his mind. The Holy Spirit worked in his heart, said, Jude, you want to write a letter about the great salvation we have. That's cool. But right now, I want you to write a letter about contending for the faith. That's what happens to Jude. Has that ever happened to you? You're busy with one thing, and suddenly the Spirit of God touches your heart and transforms you, and suddenly you find yourself doing another. We had an experience like that about 25 years ago. We were on a rooftop in Hong Kong, Helen and I, with our little, uh, Matthew was, you were still pregnant with Matthew. And we were praying about God, to God saying, Lord, do you want us to come and build, uh, to, to plant a church here? We were planning to go to Hong Kong to plant a church. And what happened? On a rooftop in Hong Kong, God said to us, no, I want you to go and plant a church in the UK. So what happened? We were going to one place. And God said, arrested us, and he took us to another place. <laughs> and that's how we ended up here. We ended up here because we were in Hong Kong, praying. And God said, no, this is not the place for you. England is the place for you. And so that's the same thing, same thing for Jude. And you might have experienced that in your own life, that God intervenes in a radical way because there's something more urgent that he has on his heart for you and for your future. And so for Jude, the more urgent thing was to write this letter about contending for faith. I just want to say this about faith. Faith is one of the most basic and most important aspects of our lives as Christians. In fact, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so Jude says what was happening in his day is that faith was becoming twisted and corrupted, and people were trying to imply that faith meant something that it didn't. And so that's why he found it necessary to, to write this letter. And he, he kind of defines it a little bit. He says these are people who long ago ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I put it to you, that's the central thing that we are facing right now in the 21st century as believers. We have to contend for the truth of the gospel. We have to contend for faith unperverted, undiluted, unchanged from the faith that we inherited and was passed down for us. And so, these verses summarize what faith is, and I'm finishing with this, okay, and then we'll go outside and have some fellowship. 
First of all, faith is something that is delivered to us. It's given to us. It's not something that we discover for ourselves. You don't invent the Christian faith up. It is a tradition in the best sense of the word. It is a tradition that has been handed down to us right from the very beginning from Jesus all through the centuries through his faithful church. It is what we have inherited and has been passed down to us by other believers. We don't invent new things about Christian belief. We are faithful to what we have been passed, has been passed down to us. And this is a living chain that goes right back to Jesus Himself. And so it is true that we learn from the Scripture and we learn from books, but it's a living tradition. Someone preached to you. Someone shared their lives with you. And because of someone else's testimony of what God has done in their lives, you, became, you came to believe. And God started to transform you. And so this is a living tradition for you and I. And it's our responsibility to take what we inherit, what we've been passed down into our lives, and to pass that on faithfully to others that are coming afterward. And don't change anything. That's the challenge that we have. It's the wonder of the grace of God has transformed your life. So the wonder of God needs to transform those that come after us. And I, I want to just highlight, secondly, it says in that verse, this Christian faith is something that once and for all has been delivered to us. Do you notice that? There's an unchangeable quality in what we inherit. It's true that each generation has to rediscover the gospel in a, in a culturally appropriate way for them. That's true. But the basics of the gospel do not change. The foundation, the foundation stones do not change. Here's one of the foundation stones. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the worst, says Paul. How does Mark put it in our study that we've just finished? Mark said it this way. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. There's the foundation, another foundation stone that does not change. That's what we pass on faithfully to others. Thirdly, I want to say this. This faith is something that is entrusted to the whole of God's church, all right? It's not the possession of special people. It's not the possession of some very, very intellectual people. It's not the possession of some very uh, special people that see things that other people don't. Whenever you hear someone claiming to have a revelation that no one else has or understanding that no one else has, let your ears kind of just prick up and be very, very careful. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that the gospel is simple, and it's for all of us, and all of us know it and understand it and can pass it on. There's no such thing as special revelation that some people have that you don't have. If you read your scripture, you have all the revelation that you need. Amen? And we'll look at a little bit about, about that as... as as the book of Jude unfolds, because he highlights some things that were happening in his day, and I want to put it to you, some of those things are happening right now as well. We need to guard ourselves that we uh, don't make the same mistakes. Lastly, the Christian faith is something that every one of us needs to lovingly defend, and that's the hard part, right? I'm talking, not talking about fighting with people, but every Christian must defend the faith. In a sense, God doesn't need to be defended. We know that. I mean, Spurgeon said that the Bible uh, if you, is a, like a roaring lion, and if you unleash the Bible, it will do its work, and, and that's true. But there are times that we have to fight for things that people are trying to change about 
what Christianity should be, believe. And one of, we live in a, a time like that right now, and it's a really difficult time to be alive. Because why? Because there's pressures coming from all sides to say, you must change. You must fit in to the rest of society in a particular way that we are saying you need to fit in. And we have to learn to contend in this very difficult situation and say, no, I lovingly want to stand on these things, and these things do not change. Okay, so now here's the word. And I, again, it's a, a Greek word which I probably will translate incorrectly. It's epagonesestai. Epagonesestai, which means the root of it for the English word is agony. Agony. You agonize over something. And this is the point that I'm trying to make. When it comes to defending the gospel, you have to sometimes, it's difficult. You agonize over it. You, you, it, you so hold it in your heart that it's not easy. It costs you something to defend the gospel. And that's what, uh, what Judah is saying. Why do we need to encourage each other? Because it costs you something. It costs you, it costs you energy. It costs you popularity. It costs you a whole lot of things to lovingly stand on the truth of the gospel and say, on this thing, I will not bend. That's cost us something. That's what Luke is trying, uh, uh, Jude is trying to say. So can I encourage you over these next months that lie ahead, that we encourage each other to stand and contend, that we link arms, we link hearts, we agree on some things, and we lovingly encourage each other to stand. Why? Because it's difficult for every one of us in this generation in which we live to contend for the faith. That's the encouragement of God to us, that we would contend for the faith. I'm going to pray. We were going to sing another song, but perhaps we won't because um, we're going to spend some time outside having fellowship, all right? But let me just pray for you. Why don't you stand with me? Maybe you want to raise your hands. It's, um, if you're comfortable to do that, it's just a sign of saying, Lord, we submit to you. Holy Spirit, we want to ask you to come into our hearts and lives in power. Jesus, we stand before you as your sons and your daughters. Thank you for your grace upon our lives. Thank you for the fact you've called us. Thank you for that love that behind your calling is your unfathomable love for us as our everlasting Father that draws us. Thank you that we're chosen. Thank you that, that we can have confidence that we are kept to that day when Jesus comes again. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for mercy and peace to be multiplied in our lives, those things that we need day by day to help sustain us. Lord, I pray for multiplication of those things in our lives, in the, lives of, uh, the life of this church over the months that lie ahead. Let grace and peace and mercy be multiplied in, a, in, a, in us and amongst us. Father, I pray that we would lovingly learn to contend for truth and what is True faith, that we would not be contentious, we would not fight with people unnecessary, unnecessarily, but they would contend for what is true. We would lovingly stand on the gospel we have received, and that we would pass that on to those coming after us, unchanged, undiluted, unperverted, the truth of your revealed gospel.
to us. We want to pass it on. Lord, give us grace to do that. Help us to do that with kindness. Help us to do that with love. And we don't push anyone away from your kingdom because of our own stupidity or lack of wisdom in how we speak. Jesus, this is difficult. It causes us agony sometimes to know how to speak to people. But Lord, your love is upon us and compels us. And your promises, Lord, as we seek to do that, your Holy Spirit would give us the words that we need to speak exactly what is right for anyone's situation. So I pray, Jesus, help us to faithfully do that in the weeks and months that lie ahead. Holy Spirit, I pray that you teach us to do that by the power of the Spirit. Thank you for your great love that's transformed our lives. And we want to pass that on to everyone that we can to see many come, many daughters come to glory. In Jesus' name we pray. So God bless you and keep you. God make his face to shine upon you. God give you peace. Have a great week. Live courageously. Live happily. Live joyfully. Jesus has got his hand upon your life. He's chosen you. He's called you. And he will keep you until that day. Amen.